Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. I think one of the problems we're having with the current COVID-19 pandemic crisis is we haven't had a coherent narrative, but science does tell us things. There's things we don't know yet, and I think we have to admit that, Mm -hmm. but we do know things based on science, and that should be the narrative. Mm -hmm. Just like in your case, science could have easily been the narrative, and you wouldn't have spent four years in prison, neither would Raphael. The first thing is to admit what you don't know. And the best uh, epidemiologists who I have worked with admit what they don't know. And the public will accept that if you say, here's what we don't know, here's what we're working on. Mm. And as soon as we do know, we'll give it to you. But right now, we're giving you the best evidence we have. And this leads into another one of my uh, bugaboos, if you will, (laughs) which is If the story that is promulgated, whether it's by the media, by politicians in the case of COVID, whether it's promulgated by the police or the prosecutor or even the defense in the case of criminal justice, if that story sounds better than the truth, then the truth often has a problem. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. That was the voice of author Mark Olshacker, who, back in 2017, was sounding the alarm about pandemics in Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, a book he co-authored with Dr. Michael Osterholm, one of the world's leading experts on infectious diseases. Olshacker is even more known for his partnership with FBI agent John Douglas, with whom he co-authored Mindhunter, a book which explores the criminal personality profiling of serial killers and mass murderers, and which later was adapted into a series on Netflix. What do these two things have in common? And how does it relate to my own wrongful conviction? We called up Mark Olshacker to find out. That's a cool office that you're in. Thank you. It's a little bit messy. If you could see, there's stuff all over the place. Um, It probably is what my mind is like. Cluttered, (laughs) cluttered. Is it mostly COVID stuff that you're looking at? Actually, most of it is crime stuff right now. I hesitate to say there's somebody who's been through what you've been through, but sex, violence, and pestilence is kind of what I do. Okay. (laughs) If you had to describe your profession in a word, what would it be? That word would be writer. Everything else flows from there. I've spent many years as a journalist, starting out with the Washington Bureau of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch during the Nixon impeachment and resignation crisis during the fall of Vietnam. I've been a journalist ever since. I've been a documentary filmmaker, primarily for PBS, 
I've been a novelist and I've been a nonfiction writer, which is how you and I got to know each other. And I'll also say that I knew about Chris before I knew about you two together because our local bookstore in Washington, Politics and Prose, had recommended his first book to me. Hey, hey. (laughs) He's talking about my 2015 novel, War of the Encyclopedists, which I co-authored with a veteran friend of mine. I think that you did something in that book which was very easy in my generation of the 60s, but much more difficult in today's world, which is you were able to capture the schizophrenic zeitgeist that we're going through right now, and, and, hmm. and I applaud you for that. Oh, well, thank Aww. you. That's quite a compliment. Especially since Olshacker knows a thing or two about co-authorship. My usual partner in crime, if you will, John Douglas, the FBI's behavioral profiling pioneer, we often say that I'm a writer masquerading as a detective, and he's a detective masquerading as a writer. Aha! My other field of interest, public health and uh, infectious disease. And I think the similarity between the two is they're both important detective stories that can have deadly consequences. And in both cases, whether it's the criminal detective or the disease detective, has to look at the evidence, sift the evidence, evaluate the evidence, and then come up with a coherent narrative that makes the evidence make sense. Can we maybe talk about your relationship with John Douglas? Sure. How did you guys stumble into each other's lives and become such a daring duo? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I know your show deals with labyrinthine journeys. Yes. And so here is mine. I have been a novelist and a documentary filmmaker for quite some time. And I had been doing a fair amount of work for NOVA, the PBS science show. The first program I did for them was called What's Killing the Children. Hmm. It was about the uh, Centers for Disease Control's Epidemic Intelligence Service Hmm. and how they had gone into the wilds of Brazil to try to figure out what was killing young children almost overnight in what they called Brazilian purpuric fever. Eventually, the case was solved and no more children died, but it was a harrowing emotional medical journey and one of high medical and technological drama. Mm. In any event, I'd done several shows for NOVA and then the executive producer of NOVA up at WGBH in Boston, Paula Absell, asked us to do a program about the building of the pyramid. So we started developing that. And then as things go financially, politically, organizationally, this pyramid show was taken away from us. But we were meeting in Paula's office in Boston, and I guess she felt badly and didn't want to tick off some of her reliable producers. And she said, what do you want to do instead? I'll give you another show to do. And I had recently read The Silence of the Lambs. I said, well, I've read this book, and it's about these FBI profilers at the Academy in Quantico, Virginia. I understand a movie is coming out, and if the movie is anywhere near as good as the book, I think it's going to be very popular. So why don't we do the real story, the behind the scenes of what these guys are actually like and how they look at a crime scene and say, you're looking for somebody who's in his mid-20s, he's nocturnal, he's Mm. probably on some kind of uh, drug regimen, he's dropped out of high school, he lives within two miles of the site, and you've probably already interviewed him or whatever. Crazy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it sounds like black magic. And 
Paula said, well, you know, it's kind of soft science, it's psychology, we don't do that much of that. But, you know, crime shows do well, so start looking into it and see if it works. So I called the public relations people at Quantico and I said, I'm a producer for PBS, I'd like to come in and talk to you about a show. And they said, fine. So I went down to uh, Quantico and we had a meeting with a number of people. John Douglas was one of them. I'd never met him at that point. And everybody was really excited about working with us, except for John. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He was like, I've dealt with journalists before. They always get the story wrong. And, you know, I was thinking, who peed on his cornflakes this morning? (laughs) But eventually we did start doing the show. I started hanging around there looking for cases and realized that John was kind of a living legend within the law enforcement world Hmm. from all of the cases that he'd been able to help on. He was certainly the model for Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, He later became the model for the main character in Criminal Minds, et cetera, et cetera. So, no, wait, uh, did John, did he agree to work with you up front? Yes, yes. Eventually he did cooperate and so did the whole team. We became very friendly with them. We did a program called Mind of a Serial Killer. It got very high ratings. We were nominated for a national Emmy. I don't know if you've noticed, but Kill seems to be in a lot of my titles. <laughs> and then, I don't know how many months later, John called me. He said, I'm getting ready to retire. Do you think anybody would be interested in my story as a book? And I said, well, I certainly would be. Let's (laughs) go to New York and see. And the movie of Silence of the Lambs had come out by that point. And there was just overwhelming interest. And so we sold the book Mindhunter. And it did so well that we just kept going. (laughs) And now I think we've done nine books together. And eventually... When we got ready to do a book called Law and Disorder, we decided this profiling and criminal investigative analysis has been used so effectively to catch criminals or to help the police. We think it could be used just as easily to um, exonerate people who have been falsely accused. Hmm. I mean, we go back to another case I've covered, the West Memphis Three case, where uh, three goth-type teenagers were supposed to have killed three eight-year-old Boy Scouts in the woods of uh, West Memphis, Arkansas, according to this whole satanic panic craze. The only problem was there was absolutely no evidence. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The FBI did a research project on all of the satanic panic stories that were going around at the time. Oprah Winfrey was doing stories Mm -hmm. on this many Police departments had experts on uh, satanic ritual murder. When the FBI correlated all the hundreds of cases that came in, they found not one actually conformed to this definition. In other words, with all of the fear, with all of the worry, there was no such thing Mm. as satanic ritual murder. And we can explain this in a lot of ways. One is the story. Another one is it's been proven over and over again that the two things that police officers and investigators are least objective about are sex and religion. Mm. This took in both of them. And a perfect example of this is the John Benet Ramsey case, which John Douglas and I investigated almost from the beginning. And in this case, I can't tell you who did it, but I think I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt 
who didn't do it, mm. and that's the parents. And I can prove that to you. I can prove it to anybody. But that's not the kind of thing people want to hear because it doesn't go along with this narrative of this beautiful little six-year-old girl being exploited in all of these beauty contests mm. to fulfill her mother's vicarious ambitions, which, of course, is not a true narrative either. Yeah. Right. But we started looking into the John Benet Ramsey murder case, the West Memphis Three case. And then I remember seeing your case on television, Amanda, and like everybody else who didn't know you, I assumed, well, that's an interesting case, this beautiful girl who somehow enticed uh, two men into killing her roommate. That's a really interesting story. Then I started looking into it and I said, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. I contacted the people who were supporting you in Seattle and your stepfather, Chris, called me. I said, look, if you'll cooperate with us, we'll give you the same deal that we give anybody else. If we come upon anything through your family's cooperation that doesn't look good for Amanda, we won't use it unless we get it verified somewhere else. And Chris said, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> uh, you're not going to find anything. I don't need that promise. So that set me off on it, and I started looking into it. Then I called John, and I said, look, you know this Amanda Knox case in Italy? And he said, yeah, I've heard of it. And I said, I think this is a huge miscarriage of justice that we need to get involved in. And he said, don't tell me anything. Give me the case, let me figure it out, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. While Mark Olshacker and John Douglas were getting involved in my case, I was stuck in a prison cell with very little access to the outside world. I had no idea who they were or that they had become invested in figuring out the truth. At that point, we had access through certain sources to crime scene photos, the evidence and all of that. And I guess about two weeks later, he called me back and he said, you're right, they didn't do it. We should get involved. And that's how it started. And one of the things that struck me was if you're a investigator and the suspect changes his story about what happened four or five times, you're going to start getting suspicious. Well, when the prosecution and the police kept changing their story four or five times, mm. that got us pretty suspicious too. And when we started looking at the actual evidence, we were just thunderstruck. Actually, I said to Amanda and Raphael individually, if you figured out a way, as the prosecution suggested, to take a bucket of bleach and a mop, go back to the crime scene the next day, erase all of your and Raphael's invisible DNA, and keep all of Rudy Gaudet's invisible DNA there, you both deserve the Nobel Prize in chemistry. <laughs> because, I mean, this is impossible. 
Yeah. That should have been the end of the case right there. Here's another example. They needed a murder weapon. So detective goes to Raphael's apartment, looks in his uh, kitchen drawer, finds a knife, takes it out. How did he know this was the knife? Investigator's instinct. This was the knife that Amanda carried in her leather handbag to the crime scene. Didn't scratch up the handbag at all, even though it was a very sharp, long knife. And she did this, even though this was a spontaneous act, which made no sense whatsoever. But there was only one problem with this knife, which is that it didn't fit. It didn't correspond to one of the major wounds in Meredith's neck. Okay, so logic would tell you that this is not the knife. But instead, the logic became, well, then there must have been two knives. So when this kind of illogic just kept getting compounded, this was just so indicative of everything. And you can take it from a scientific perspective, from an evidentiary perspective, from a behavioral perspective. I mean, isn't it interesting that Amanda, who easily could have left the country the next day as an American, it never even occurred to her because she wanted to help with the investigation of the murder of her friend. And Rudy, on the other hand, leaves right away. Is that not evidence? His fingerprints are found there. Nobody else's are. Is that not evidence? So the fact that this compulsion to come up with the story, this confirmation bias, which we deal with all the time, leads everybody in one direction. Even the fact that at first, they were convinced that Amanda's boss, Patrick Lumumbo, was involved with her. And then when he completely alibied out, it was, oh, okay, well, Amanda must still be involved. We've just got the wrong African. That's all. This kind of stuff just enrages me because I see it all the time. I mean, let me put it to your partner and husband, Chris, who is a uh, published novelist. Tell me what you think is a better story. Do you like the story of somebody who just casually breaks and enters looking for credit cards, money, drugs, whatever he thinks he can find, suddenly interrupted by somebody who comes home? He realizes that he's got to neutralize her, but in the meantime, he takes sexual advantage of her, stabs her, and then runs away. That's one possibility. On the other hand, what if you have a drug crazed, satanic freak out <laughs> orgy between two beautiful women and one of them ends up stabbing the other to death. I mean, as a novelist, what's a better story? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this has to do with novelty and breaking expectations and presenting an extreme case, right? Mm -hmm. The truth is often not a crazy story beyond belief that defies everything we know about reality. When you think about a guy like Aaron Ralston, the guy who got his arm trapped in the boulder, great story, right? True story, a tale of survival, Shackleton's voyage, another crazy extreme case. Most people are never in that position. And we're drawn to those types of stories where people find themselves in very rare, unusual circumstances. Consequently, it seems like we have a drive to mold and shape the boring truth to push it towards those rare, unusual circumstances, because otherwise it's not a story at all, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And so, Amanda, you were a story just perfect for the press, and you were young and naive enough to not know how to fight back against it. I think another problem with your story was your name. Amanda Knox is a very easy name to remember, ah. no matter what language you're in. And when they came up with the Foxy Noxy rubric, which I understand was from your teenage soccer years, mm -hmm. there you have it, all of the ingredients. Uh -huh. hmm. You have a very common human failing of not wanting to admit when you don't know something. Investigators often face this pressure the media is breathing down their neck. The, the public wants to know. People are afraid. A gruesome murder has happened. Nobody wants to admit we don't know, which is the credo of the scientist, right? Absolutely, Chris. So there's that. And they don't want to admit that they were wrong. So they fill that void of I don't know with something. <laughs> and when it turns out that that something was wrong, they're also reluctant to say, oh, that thing we told you, it turns out it's not true. And so they double down. Absolutely. I, I listened to a podcast you all did recently when Rudy Gaudet was let out of prison. Mm. And I think you were more generous than I would have been, Amanda. That's uh, what a lot of people say. <laughs> uh, giving him a second chance. I think that you know, it all does come down to the question of, are we as bad as the worst thing we've ever done? And I'm willing to concede that most of the time we're not, although cold-blooded murder, I sometimes make an exception for. As an example, the question always comes up every year or so, should the remaining members of the Manson family be paroled? Right. My feeling is they are not dangerous anymore. They're not going to go out and kill anybody. They're not going to spew hatred anymore. On the other hand, like I have with Meredith's murder, I've studied the crime scene photos. I've seen what was done. And just in terms of the balance of the universe, what they did was so horrible, so anti-human, that I don't know if that can be come back from, hmm. if that makes any sense. I mean, the, the place that I come at this all from is a deterministic lack of free will. I don't believe in free will. I believe we live in a either deterministic or, depending on the science, random universe. And neither of those things makes room for any sort of meaningful freedom from causality. Nobody chooses their genetics. Nobody chooses their circumstances. Nobody chooses the world they're born into and the ways that world impacts their genetics and their parentage and all those things that lead someone to become a Charles Manson. And so from that perspective, I have a lot of compassion for basically everyone, even for someone like Hitler. Like, it would suck to be Hitler. <laughs> you don't want to be Hitler. That person didn't choose to become who they were. Now, we should keep society safe. We should remove the dangerous elements from society. We should address the harms done to victims. We should find ways to heal those harms. Punishing one person most often doesn't actually heal the person who is harmed. So the question about whether someone should remain in prison for me is a very practical one about, will they be a danger to society? Is this place helping them to become better themselves? If not, let's put them in a place that actually rehabilitates them. I don't believe that vengeance is justice. I don't believe in, in retributive punishment at all. The only punishment that's valid is the one that fixes you or that protects other people. 
I can respect that. And certainly, as you know, the restorative justice movement has gained uh, traction in recent years. And to the extent that that works, fine. What I keep thinking about is all of the trolls against Amanda. One of the things that I think none of them have considered is what if Amanda had been the one who stumbled home that night instead of Meredith? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think about that a lot. I think about what if it had been me and Meredith was the one who ended up in prison? What if we had both been home and we just both were slaughtered? Yeah. Or if we both were home, maybe we would have been able to fight him off. Who knows? One thing that we're sort of pinpointing here is there's this feeling of something terrible happened. How do we balance the universe? And unfortunately, in, in some cases, the victims, there's nothing you can do to balance it out for them. But I just would love to imagine a world where we focus on uplifting victims more than we focus on punishing bad people. Because I feel like even with what Rudy Gaudet did and what Mignini did to me and to Meredith, it's not like I feel better knowing that Mignini would get fired or Rudy Gaudet would spend more time in prison. As I'm living my day-to-day life, I feel better knowing that I'm safe from them. Um, One thing you don't have that would be very meaningful is acknowledgement. Yes. Acknowledgement from both Minini and from the state of Italy and from Rudy Gaudet. Like those trolls would disappear. Absolutely. And let me say that acknowledgement would do one other thing, which would be incredibly valuable. If those parties that you mentioned, Gaudet and Menini and the police, and if they would all acknowledge what actually happened yeah. and what the truth and evidence suggested, then something else could happen, which is you, Amanda, could be a great comfort to the Kircher family. Yeah. And that's something that has been denied to them and it's been denied to you. I agree. No. Now we're kind of sad. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a silver lining here. This diagnosis of how a compelling but untrue story impacted Amanda's fate, leaving her and the Kircher family without closure, may shed some light on Olshacker's other focus, public health, and how narrative is affecting our response to the pandemic. I've done a presentation, which I call Better Than the Truth. And I use your case, the Ramsey case, West Memphis 3, to show if the narrative that comes out is better than what actually happened, then it's very difficult to get the evidence-based story out there. And I imagine the same thing with public health crises, you know? Sure. I mean, I thought it was kind of amazing. I read yesterday that 49% of Republican men do not plan to get the COVID vaccine, which I find staggering. What narrative have they swallowed about the vaccine that makes them not want to get it? Why do more than half the Republicans think that the last election was stolen from President Trump, despite the fact that 
60 courts and many judges who were appointed by Trump disagreed. My response is, show me the evidence. I don't know how many times, and you must have heard this innumerable times, Amanda, I've talked about your case, the Ramseys, West Memphis Three, and given the evidence of why it was impossible that whoever it was, was guilty. And they say, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I still think she did it. I still think she had something to do with it. And uh, I got a feeling. (laughs) Yeah. You know, my other writing partner, Dr. Michael Osterholm, with whom I write about public health, he says, we can hope that the virus doesn't spread, but hope is not a strategy. Yeah. Evidence is. Yeah. I think you're getting at something about the nature of human belief in general, which is that as much as our modern world is built upon scientific thinking, Mm -hmm. most humans throughout history and presently don't believe things because of evidence. They believe things because of stories. That's very true. And it works on all kinds of different levels that we might not even think about right away. For instance, we have a total disconnect between things that are likely to kill us things that are likely to hurt us, and things that just make us feel bad. We don't plan for pandemics, even though arguably a pandemic like we're experiencing right now is clearly the greatest threat to national security we're likely to see. I mean, how much money have we spent on what we call national security or anti-terrorism since 9-11? I'm not saying that's wrong. But there was no way whatsoever that a group of terrorists flying planes into a building, even as horrible as that was, were going to shut down American society. Yeah. COVID-19 did it in weeks. You know, one of the things we talked about, Mike Osterholm and I, in our book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, was what we call the threat matrix. And we all have different threat matrices of what we'll accept. For example, we will easily accept 40,000 highway deaths a year because we're used to it. And yet, when the bridge collapsed over the Mississippi River in Minneapolis and a few people were killed, that was horrible. So it's just one of the things we're used to. And for instance, if we go back to, say, 1903, the beginning of the Ford Motor Company, and we say, We have a way of replacing horses and wagons with self-propelled vehicles that you can drive on your own. You can go anywhere in the country you want with it, and soon we'll be able to drive from one coast to another all by ourselves, wherever we want to go. Don't have to change horses, don't have to feed them, Mm -hmm. anything. The only thing we're going to have to do is, this is going to require a sacrifice to the gods of 40,000 people a year. Mm-hmm. Would we have gone for that? I don't know if we would have or not. And climate change. <laughs> right? climate, change yeah. climate change is the same way. Climate change is yeah. a slow-moving tsunami. And we have several of these. So another thing we wrote about, which has taken a backseat to infectious disease because of the pandemic, is antibiotic resistance. Hmm. This is a huge problem around the world. What most people don't realize is 70% of the antibiotics are used in agriculture hmm. just to uh, fatten up cattle and pigs and wow. chickens. Yeah. And we're going to pay a price for this soon. We could easily go back to the time when a scratch 
could kill you or we can't do surgery anymore because we can't prevent infection. So this is another example of we are not concentrating on the things that are really serious and really dangerous. I would say that climate change, infectious disease, and antibiotic resistance are probably the three greatest existential threats this planet faces right now. Hmm. But we're, to go back to COVID for a minute, we really are in a race against uh, time with the variants. And Hmm. the more people we can get vaccinated quickly, the more we're going to be able to control this. But I'll be the first to admit, again, we really don't know what's going to happen yet. We're optimistic, but stay tuned. And the other thing is Michael Osterholm and I are now working on a new book about how to prepare for the next pandemic. And the one thing I can tell you for sure is there will be another one. I can't tell you what microbe it will be. I can't tell you when it'll be, but it will happen just like climate change is happening. So let's get it right this time. Well, that's no fun. Can't I be in denial? Come on. (laughs) Well, you know, with all my own anxieties, I've been told that practicing healthy denial is actually a good thing. Yeah. I mean, threat matrices and cognitive bias and narrative spinning. How do you apply that to your personal life? And how do you personally grapple with your own vulnerability for confirmation bias? That's a very good question, Amanda. I've tried to train myself to be evidence-based. We all have our emotional vulnerabilities and anxieties, but in things that I'm trying to deal with on a professional level, whether it's public health or criminal justice, I really try to let the evidence lead me and the experts I trust lead me. I think I've learned one of the things that you two have both learned is to listen. Hmm. to listen to people. And I think the other thing, which uh, you all have certainly manifest in your work together, is curiosity. I've been very, very lucky over the years that I've been able to live many interesting people's lives vicariously through my novel writing, through my nonfiction writing, my journalism, my documentary film work, getting to see how other people function through a natural sense of curiosity. Curiosity may be the most important trait we can cultivate. Without it, there is no pursuit of truth. And without that, we end up with wrongful convictions, with mishandled pandemics. The good news, ignorance doesn't have to be shameful. It doesn't have to lead us to double down on false narratives to protect our egos. It can be a source of joy unlike any other. Personally, that's my favorite drug. I'm always craving another hit of that feeling when you learn something new, when your worldview shifts closer to the truth. So we encourage you to embrace being wrong, confused, or lost. It's the only way to chase that curiosity high. So please, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter. At Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if you want to engage with us face-to-face, visit us at knoxrobinson.com where you can find out how to subscribe to our patron-only content and join us for live video hangouts. This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo-Karp. They call me the hypnotist.
hippopotamus flows the glue like phosphorus. They call me the hippopotamus flows the glue like phosphorus, popping off the soffit. Ah! Hop, is it mm, hopping? Popping off, popping off the top of this esophagus. Rocking this metropolis. Okay, so they call me the hippopotamus, flows like glow like phosphorus, popping off the top of this esophagus. Rocking this metropolis. Rocking this metropolis. Not a large water dwelling mammal hoop. <laughs> the hypothesis. Did Steve tell you that for chance? <laughs> Steve. <laughs> Hold it right there. Let me hear your ads. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener-supported. This podcast is listener-supported. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. Come on, boys. Let's visit patreon.com slash Robinson. Ha, 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 ha.